Hello and welcome everybody to this week's Dev Central Connects. My name is Boo, your host today. I'm one of the community evangelists with the F5 Dev Central team. F5 Dev Central, if you're not aware, is the home of F5's technical user community. We find ourselves on community.f5.com where we have our message forums for Q&A. Uh, we have uh, various groups on there as well. There's a group called Dev Central Connects where you can actually find more information about our live streams. Uh, you can connect with all the Dev Central hosts on there as well. We publish technical articles on there as well. And we've had some interesting chats on there lately that we're going to dig into um, in a little bit here once I welcome our guest. Um, our guest today, and I'll bring him on in just a second here, our guest today is Dan Moore. He is the head of developer relations with FusionAuth. And uh, fun fact, I actually met, uh, I met Dan briefly uh, before, but I actually met the folks at FusionAuth back at GlueCon. And so... Um, if you dig back through the YouTube, uh, Dev Central YouTube archives from last year, uh, I was actually at this event called GlueCon, and it was my first event, in-person event back, you know, once kind of doing a little bit of travel again. First event uh, actually as a Dev Central evangelist as well. And our booth uh, for F5 NGINX was actually right beside FusionAuth. So I got to have a chat with those guys, and I was just... Um, uh, I, I was uh, I was loving them because they had the same kind of views around authentication uh, that we do at F5 and, and Nginx and everything kind of aligned and and we were great friends uh, after that. So uh, looking forward to having this chat with Dan. Um, I would like to remind everybody though, if you are watching via YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn right now, please give us a like, hit follow if you're on one of those platforms. You might be listening to us via podcast right now, so that might be. Um, Google, Apple, or Spotify. Make sure you're following and subscribing on that. Uh, give us a review if possible as well. A five-star review totally helps us out, helps us with uh, growing this channel and uh, getting more of this content out there. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Dan. Dan, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, boo. Yeah. Thanks for jumping on. Uh, for the folks who uh, might not know who you are, maybe I'll give you a second here to introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Dan Moore, and I've been a developer for a couple of decades, played a variety of different roles. Um, I was a contractor. I was a kind of a frontline developer. I called them, a, we call ourselves worker bees back then, engineering manager, uh, CTO. I've been a technical trainer, and now I get to be in developer relations for a company called FusionAuth, which you mentioned. And we uh, basically, my job lets me go around talking about authentication and OAuth and various standards. And what FusionAuth does, and I'm going to do the one sentence explanation, and then we can go on to talk about things that are in more interesting to your audience. Um, FusionAuth basically offloads undifferentiated authentication authorization functionality so that dev teams can focus on building features and doing work that matters for their users yeah yeah that's fantastic it is uh it's a cool product um when i looked at it i i liked to uh, well we we can talk about that stuff later but i really liked how it looked from a workflow perspective i, th I think it looked really nice for be able for people to not have to worry so much about the off side it was it was very pretty i've seen other interfaces where it's a little bit more complicated to actually know what's going to happen when you when you implement the configuration. So that looked pretty cool. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to uh, mention, though, I was talking about uh, actually, first of all, um, I would love to know where everybody is watching from today. For those in the audience, Aubrey is in the icy tundra of Rochester, New York. Um, 
<laughs> I mentioned to Dan, we were talking about the weather as mentioning to Dan, I'm in Vancouver, BC, up in the Pacific Northwest uh, of North America. And we've got a little bit of snow today, enough that it's going to cause mayhem on the roads. My wife is out uh, right now dropping the kids off at school. So we'll see how she gets on. And Dan, it's a little bit cold where you are as well. Yeah, it's um, about five degrees Fahrenheit. So I haven't done the calculation, but I think that's negative 20 Celsius around that area. But <laughs> cold enough that walking the dog was really, uh, it was a brisk walk this morning. Let's just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Uh, here we got Jason, icy cornfields of Illinois, 14 degrees outside. I'm going to drop a little man off at school. Yeah, it is uh, It's a little cool right now on this last day of January. Uh, very cool. So I'm going to, uh, there's a couple conversations that are happening on Dev Central, And I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you with these, Dan. One of the things that I'd love to find out from you is, do you have a home lab? And if you do have a home lab, what is your hypervisor of choice if you are virtualizing at home because there's a couple that are being tossed around here i don't have a home lab i confess <laughs> <laughs> yeah a couple of us do have home labs actually all of the evangelists here have home labs and so i've been debating switching out my hypervisor i'm on esx right now mm -hmm. he's on kvm couple people have talked about uh, Proxmox, actually. Um, I built, I did a video where I built out a ESX server and uh, I kept getting comments saying, try Proxmox, try Proxmox. And like, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to do that. So what was the, what was the big reason they wanted you to try Proxmox? Is it just I don't know. Modern or is <laughs> That's it? Okay. what I'm asking. Okay, gotcha. I'm, on the, I'm on the forums <laughs> and I'm like, hey guys, uh, a bunch of you have said I should try Proxmox, but nobody has said why yet. Uh, so sure. I'm waiting for that, for that magical answer. That's going to say, this is the key reason why you should move over to Proxmox mm -hmm. KVM. I would love to, uh, I would love to know why Aubrey likes KVM. So feel free to chime in on that. But yeah, good discussions that we have over on, uh, community.f5.com free to join. Would love to get everybody's opinion on uh, hypervisor, hypervisor that I might uh, want to change to. But today we're going to talk a little bit about auth. We could try this out in my lab at some point, or Jason might, maybe he can do that in one of his uh, live coding sessions. One of the things we kind of tossed around what we could chat about today, Dan, was around OAuth and protecting your applications. And you've got a ton of experience with this. You see Fusion OAuth helps out with this uh, as well. So maybe you can give us an idea of what your approach is uh, when it comes to protecting applications. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's worth distinguishing between um, applications that like users might access and then also like APIs. And I think OAuth and some of its related standards can kind of play a role in both. But uh, if it's okay with you for this conversation, I'd like to focus on APIs. They're yeah. a lot of traffic. They're something that I think people build that and, you know, don't necessarily think about when they're building them out, maybe they're focused on kind of the nuts and bolts of it rather than um, the real world concerns of security, throttling, billing, et cetera, that, that really matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know the title of this live stream is access tokens and APIs like peanut butter and jelly. And so I'd like to focus on that. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to think about is like, does your API need to be protected at all? And in that case, you, if it doesn't, you know, put it out there on the web, add it to programmable web, which I think is still a thing and you're done. Right. But 
even in the case where you really want your API to be really public, you may still want to have some idea who's using it. And you can do that in a couple of different ways, right? You can do it at the network layer. And that works great if you have a constrained set of users. But once you kind of put your API out there to be public, then you start to run into other issues, right? Because you can't really constrain, you can't really like add IP addresses for the entire internet to your allow list, right? That's going to be a frustrating exercise. So um, you can do stuff with uh, client certificates and TLS, although Mm -hmm. that can be kind of harder to deploy. And again, it depends on who your clients are. And then you, the, a really canonical kind of application layer solution is API keys, which are basically big long strings that have a high entropy that you can use to uniquely identify clients. And that works really well for simple APIs or simple use cases because you basically just hand them out to every developer or everybody who wants to use your, your client. But what happens is you may say, well, I have API A and API B, and I want to share API keys between these, or I want different permissions for each one. Okay, I'm going to centralize all my API keys in a certain server. Okay, now I want to be able to rotate my API keys on a regular basis, and I have have to have some way to like let the clients know they need to pick up a new one. I may want to encode some structure into those API keys. Mm. And then... You know, by the way, at the end of the day, after five or six of these, you know, requirements, congratulations, you've invented OAuth, which is basically a way to delegate credentials. And you can think of the tokens that OAuth generates as a time-bound API key that in some, you know, you can get structure out of and there's other kind of defined workflows. Sure, I don't, I don't want to ramble. Yeah. So. No, um, no, keep going. Okay. Um, so if you, if you look at OAuth in general, um, it's a standard that was codified there was an oauth 1 that was codified in 2010 but oauth 2 is is was codified in 2012 by the ietf and there have been multiple i think i counted 20 or so probably more than that because i don't keep track of everything but 20 or so additions and kind of changes and, and improvements to the protocol over the years but fundamentally things are still pretty much the same in terms of there's a client that wants access to resources. There's a resource server that holds data or functionality and that in an API world would be an API. And then there's an authorization server which holds authentication data. And so what happens is the client tends to make a request to the resource server. The resource server checks the credentials the client doesn't have the credentials, they bounce them over to the authorization server where they're authenticated. And I think one of the strengths of OAuth is that that authorization server, that whole process of authenticating the user or the entity is super opaque to the resource server. So some authorization servers might say, give me username and password. Some might say, MFA, some might say, bring out your hardware tokens. Some might say, give me three or four factors of authentication. At the end of the day, there's a token generated and that's what's given to the client and presented to the resource server. So that does a couple things. One is it lets the authorization server cater the or adjust the level of authentication based on the resource server that it's handing over a token to eventually. And it also lets things improve over time with no effort on the part of the resource server. A couple of years ago, 10 years ago, MFA wasn't as much of a thing. 
it depended on the environment, right? Especially in the consumer space. I think it really wasn't really a thing. Now it's really a thing. And if you had the foresight to build your APIs on top of an authorization server, well, you can turn on MFA for all your users in, in one place and they'll transparently get that extra level of security basically apply to all your resource servers. Some of the challenges that folks might encounter then is when it comes to um, scaling this, like that authorization server. It's not just like, uh, you know, previously, if you're probably handling user by user, it could be a manual process, but now this could possibly have to scale to, you know, hundreds of signups an hour for a new application that you've just kicked off and it's all uh, based on OAuth. And so there's got to be a lot of programmability around the um, uh, authorization server. Yeah. I mean, you definitely want to like, preferably the authorization servers API driven or very well documented. You want to make sure it's performant. And there are, and I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to toot my own horn too much, but there are plenty of authorization servers out there and we encourage everyone to load test their authorization server during their process. We've load tested up to 2000 requests a second against our servers. Um, and that was a custom build, right? That wasn't something that you can just like plop right out. Sorry, the software wasn't custom just the, the server configuration was. Yeah, so, you, you know, because authentication is the front door of your application, you want to make sure it's highly available and highly performant. You know, again, I think that if you have to spend time making an aspect of your application really um, secure and performant, um, that's when it makes sense to... Actually, let me take a step back. I think a lot of people think about authentication and they want to roll their own. Mm. If, they, if people can only take one message away from this, I'd say don't roll your own authentication. There's lots of open source libraries and most frameworks these days now have authentication snaps in and that's great. The issue that a lot of our customers run into is they have, you know, you don't necessarily only have one application, right? And so then you end up with user data siloed if you have multiple different applications and that's where it makes sense kind of extract it into an authorization server. Mm, that's interesting. What, um, and you have this developer background, so I'd be interested to know, like some of the thing, some of the examples that you kind of talked through there, is this not something that people are thinking of right off the bat? They build out their applications and then they're revisiting um, their authentication strategy afterwards. Are you encountering that a lot with folks? Really? Yeah, I, I mean, so full credit to Auth0, who's one of our competitors, mm -hmm. like, in 2013, they, they started out and they really pushed the idea of outsourcing authorization and, uh, well, authorization authentication. And obviously it existed before, right? Because we had LDAP servers, we had Active Directory, right? We had that, but that was all kind of from the IT space. Mm. And so it was really more employee or workforce oriented. I think what Auth0 did is they really pushed that to the consumer space where your customers also will have accounts. And we just saw that, uh, especially during the last couple of years, of the pandemic, like there's an explosion of everybody wanting to, um, you know, not everybody wanting, you need to have an account with any service provider. And yes, you can federate up to Google or Facebook or whatnot, which is one option to do, one option to reduce friction and help your your customers out. But lots of times you, you wanna have profile data yourself. So 
I don't think people ignore authentication authorization. I feel like when I was a developer, um, it was a kind of this scary thing that you touch like once in a while, mm -hmm. right? And so you kind of maybe read the docs of the framework's authentication system and you would just try to figure out just to like the minimum level and then it would work and then you wouldn't really touch it. And so I don't, uh, which by the way, again, reading your framework's documentation and implementing that is, is far better than rolling your own. But I feel like it's, it's now kind of seen as a competitive differentiator to have that data in a kind of a aggregated space as opposed to across different applications. And uh, frankly, it's a better experience for the user too, right? Like mm. I don't want to like, you know, I really want single sign-on like if Google let made me do like log in different differently for Gmail and Google Calendar and Google Docs, it would be a really unpleasant experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe you know, having said all that, that's awesome to uh, uh, to run through. Uh, maybe we can tie in how how does this tie into Fusion Auth? Like, you guys have some differentiators that help people out in the market. Sure. So you know, we conform to a couple of different standards, OAuth two, and there's another one called OIDC, which stands for Open ID Connect, which is essentially a way to get profile information and authentication information on top of the OAuth two standard, which is really more around does the client have access to that resource server, right? It's an authorization standard. And we're differentiated by being API first. So you can, if you're using Fusion Auth, you can either use kind of our UI and UX for your end customers, or you can um, use our APIs and basically build everything from scratch. And so some people want that level of control. We're also differentiated because we're kind of we're multi-tenant from the ground up and we are also self-hostable. So we see a lot of places where people want to deploy into Kubernetes or into their own data centers for Definitely. compliance reasons or control reasons or data sovereignty reasons. And yet they don't want to roll their own solution. And so they look to a solution like Fusion Auth. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Alrighty, so we'll have more information if folks were to check out community.f5.com. There is the groups on there, the, the Def Central Connects group, and then you can connect with Dan on there. Um, one of the things that you will find on there is actually some news articles that we wanted to chat about. But before we even chat about that, I'm going to bring up, whoa, this is really small, I think, for the folks that might be viewing right now. Um, if you are listening right now, I have brought up community.f5.com. And if you had over one more conversation that I want to bring up with Dan. If you head over into Water Cooler, our own Rebecca Maloney, she is our content manager on the F5 Dev Central team. If anybody submits an article to Dev Central, it actually goes through Rebecca. And uh, she actually had a router blow up yesterday. So she's looking for suggestions on her home router. Let's see, Aubrey's uh, investigating PFSense. Uh, another one, TP Link Deco W7200. Interesting. Leslie's got a Netgear AC3000. Uh, Michael Coleman, uh, iOS. What uh, What's your weapon of choice there, Dan? You know, I actually, I, I feel kind of embarrassed coming on your show. I'm like, I am a kind of level seven guy. Like I'm an application guy. So I use the default router that came with my, my internet provider. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so. always a, a solid choice in that you get support on that too, right? Like there's something to be said about being able to just call up your provider and say, hey, there's something wrong with this thing. Come uh, come fix it. 
And then they ask you, did you turn it off and turn it on again? Right. Yeah. Like that's always <laughs> the first step. Always the first step. Yeah. Yeah. I think Re- Rebecca went through a couple of, uh, a couple of reboots yesterday, uh, as well. Uh, personally, I've got an Asus, um, AX, I think it's a mesh one and it's Wi-Fi six and starting to see more of my devices be Wi-Fi six. And so I'm getting uh, pretty good speeds out of that. I got my fiber, um, connection for oh, that. Don't, don't rub it in, man. Don't, <laughs> you have, you have fiber to the home. Yeah. No fiber, fiber to your there? office. Uh, no, no, I, actually there's a, a city about 20 miles away from us that they built out a municipal fiber network, but we have not, not seen any of that oh, really? sweet, sweet speed. Yeah. Yeah. There is uh so right about six feet away from me, there's fiber that comes straight into my office and I took out, uh, I took out my ISP's router and that, um, that fiber LC connection goes directly into, well, it goes into a media converter actually. And the media converter goes directly into, um, my, um, ubiquity router. Um, which is, uh, the straight up router one, like the, the service provider, uh, type one, as opposed to the, um, dream, I think they're called the dreams or something like that. They're the fancy Mm -hmm. ones. I just have like the straight up, I just want a router kind of ones. Um, Jason Rahm here, he's got uh, PF sense software can be great. If you get prosumer hardware software can only do so much on garbage consumer here. I totally agree, Jason. I had PF sense running on my ESX server at one time. Lovely, lovely software. Um, but once in a while I would have some hardware issues that would, uh, bung up my, uh, my router. And so, yeah, definitely want to get, uh, you can get dedicated hardware that's really meant for PFSense. So that's a cool option there. Um, a couple other things though, we've got some news articles to news articles to talk about here. Facebook bug allows 2FA bypass via Instagram. And so, I thought this was interesting here for a couple of reasons. One, we're going to talk about API auth today anyways. And so this is one where uh, you get into Facebook by actually linking a Facebook and Instagram account together. And then people found that, or somebody found that if you drive a a one-time pin confirmation on Facebook, you could actually hit an Instagram API endpoint. And then there was no rate limiting on it. So you could brute force it. It's probably a four pin I believe it's a four pin uh, code on that, uh, that you could brute force. So that would happen pretty quickly there if there's no rate limiting. Um, and then there was a bug bounty. So this person claimed $27,000 through the bug bounty program. So pretty neat. I don't know if you've encountered any of these, Dan, as far as uh, endpoints that have no rate limiting and uh, didn't look like it was authenticated uh, very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I don't have a lot of familiarity with Instagram and Facebook's APIs, but um that definitely is, it just points to kind of another thing you have to think about when you're doing APIs, right? It's not just authentication's nice, right? But if you just authenticate people willy nilly and don't do anything with that data later or possibly in real time, then you can run into issues, right? Like, so this, and, and frankly, you don't have to have authentication to throttle somebody either, right? Because you can throttle based on uh, the request characteristics or the IP address it's coming from or, or something like that. And, you know, I'm sure this was a, an unforeseen bug that Instagram allowed. One thing that's interesting to me is that like, this points to kind of the complexity around collision of systems too, right? Cause there was a Facebook account, but it was an Instagram endpoint, but I know Facebook is starting to, and has been for ever since they acquired Instagram, starting to kind of 
integrate things, you know, I think you can log in with the same credentials into Facebook and Instagram, although I'm not a huge Instagram user, just points to some like real, real complexities around this. And, and the fact that like 2FA is not this magic uh, bullet, right? Like there are ways around things and you need to make sure that you make sure that you structure it correctly. And I think we're going to talk if we have time about WebAuthn, which is a different kind of 2FA that is harbor based that would be it's not like this token, not this pin based solution that is really, really hard, difficult to fish. So I hope we get time to talk, chat about that. Yeah, let's let's dive into that. Actually, um, WebAuthn is is a subject that I haven't actually dug into very much. I've seen it a little bit after, you know, seen it mentioned more and just uh, looking into uh, FusionAuth stuff. So maybe you can t- kind of take us through what WebAuthn is. Sure. So WebAuthn is, uh, again, it's another standard. Um, you'll probably hear me harp on standards for a while, but we're real bl- big believers in standards. But it's a standard from the W3C and a, a group called the FIDO Network, or no, sorry, the FIDO Alliance, which has like Intuit and PayPal and some really big folks who realized kind of early in the 2010s that people, that passwords were insecure. And I'll be the first to say like, have I been pwned is a great resource for finding out if you, if your password has been compromised and there are, um, you know, unfortunately people have a hard time remembering (laughs) passwords and people are using password managers more and more, which is awesome because they can generate those long passwords. But yeah, I would still say it's still not really consumer uh, ready. But anyway, WebAuthn is consumer ready and it is available on all the major browsers. And what it basically does is in your computer or your device, your iOS device or your Android device, you can basically create public private key pairs. And through the WebAuthn process, through this standardized process, there's a way for a website to say, hey, I want to I want to enroll this user in WebAuthn and it sends a request. The public private key pair is created. The public key is sent up to the website and associated through the specification with that host name. So uh, you cannot, because of the way it's been designed, you can't send this, um, sorry, I'm getting myself. So then you've been registered on this website with this and this public keys associated with you. Next time you want to authenticate, the website sends some stuff down, it gets signed with a private key, and then gets sent back to the website. And the website can verify it with that public key, you just basically kind of public private key encryption, but with a very nice user interface over it and tied to the host name. So the, the, the protocol won't send that signed message to a spoofed host name. That just isn't something that can be done. It can only be transmitted over TLS because it was a protocol that was created in 20, I think it was standardized in 2018. So you don't have to deal with HTTP issues, right? And so what it does, and the other thing is that there's no, there's no user entry, right? The user's not entering something that they get from someplace else. So you can't, you know, there were, there are other, you don't have this here. And, and I know this wasn't, um, uh, this is a couple months old, but a while back there was a vendor that got compromised because someone found a way to send requests for 2FA authentication over and over again to people's phones. And then they got notification fatigue and they finally said, accept it. Right. 
um, to, you know, to just stop bugging me. And that can never happen with WebAuthn because it's this kind of super tight coupling. So it's kind of, and, and those two things, by the way, the, the, the first thing where you say, Hey, I want to set up a WebAuthn credential on for this account. And then the login process, those are both called ceremonies by WebAuthn and they're defined in very great specificity during the, in the standard. Mm. No, that's pretty cool. Uh, we've got to dig into that more at some point, actually. Maybe that's a cool lab or something to check out. But, uh, yeah. you know, sounds very promising for uh, what it offers. I think we have reached time today, Dan. So thank you very much for joining me today. Great conversation. Love uh, love hearing about this. Love hearing about Fusion Auth. Uh, maybe for folks who want to find out more uh, connecting with yourself and finding more about Fusion Auth, where can they go? Sure. The best place to go is FusionAuth.io. And then my Twitter handle is up there on my on the screen, but it's more DS if you're listening on the podcast. And thank you so much for having me, Boo. It was really fun to kind of talk about a wide variety of topics. And uh, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Everybody can connect with Dan. Dan, thank you very much for joining me. I will take you off for a sec and go through a couple housekeeping items. All righty. Great to have Dan on. Um, just as we wrap up here, if you haven't already, hit subscribe wherever you're watching from right now. So that could be LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. If you happen to be listening to this um, as far as a, a audio podcast right now, then you're either listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Please make sure you subscribe to us on that. Leave us a five-star review if possible. And go head over to community.f5.com. We'd love for you to either participate in the what is your favorite hypervisor discussion or recommend a router for our Rebecca Maloney on the forums as well. We'd love to hear what everybody's opinions are. And otherwise, thank you very much for joining us this week and we will see you all next week. Bye for now.